Today I've entitled the message, How to Know You're a Christian. Before we get to talking about that question in detail, we need to talk about how do we know things? How do we really know what's true and what's false? We live in what I consider to be an increasingly strange world. Anybody agree? Things are getting stranger, stranger by the day. It's a world in which concepts of right and wrong and true and false are becoming increasingly blurred. Judges 17.6 says, In those days, now this is talking about not today, but days thousands of years ago in the nation of Israel, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so this verse speaks of a, not a good time in Israel's history. It was an evil time. It was the time of the judges. It was a time in which there was no righteous authority, no righteous standard. And so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And as I was thinking about that verse, I, I think it, it defines the time that we live in today. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes, what they think is right. So what's wrong with that kind of subjective thinking? You know, this person has an opinion that they think is right. This person has another opinion that they think is right. Now, the two cannot possibly be right at the same time. But each person is convinced that their thinking is right because it's what they think. Proverbs 21 verse 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. But the Lord weighs the heart. And so this verse tells us that, yeah, people are going to think what's right based on their own opinion. But there is an objective standard of right and wrong, not based on people's opinion. And that standard is the Lord. The Lord determines what is really right and what is really wrong. So let's just think about, for a few minutes, one of the many examples in our world today of people doing and thinking what is right in their own eyes. Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So this is God, the creator of the universe. This is how he created people. Uh, he created Male and female. And that stands. That is the way it happened. That is the way it happens today. God's word tells us the truth. God continues to create two and only two genders, male and female. Now today we understand more than they did by science back in, well, of course God understood it because he invented everything, but more than the people back thousands of years ago understood. We understand that encoded in the DNA of people, is their genders. And so in every male, he has an XY has XY chromosomes. Every female has XX chromosomes. That's encoded into the DNA of people. And nothing that a person does, nothing that a person thinks, can change their chromosomes that were received at when? At conception. Today, some people think they are the opposite gender than what their DNA uh, has been encoded for. That is a 
that is a, uh, a mental disorder. It has a term, gender dysphoria, gender dysphoria, and those people need help. And yet, some today encourage and celebrate those who even have their bodies mutilated to unsuccessfully, in their minds, change their gender. So, what you, when you believe something about yourself that is not in fact true, it causes major problems. So that's just one example. There's many other strange examples in our world today about people believing something to be true about themselves or about the world that we live in when it is in fact not true. What do those issues have to do with our topic today? How to know you're a Christian. Although knowing whether you're male and female, I think is pretty important. Uh, knowing whether you're a Christian or not is of even greater importance. It's of supreme importance. Today in America, polls change uh, all the time, but today in America, 69% of Americans think they're Christians. Now, that is down quite a bit from what it was years ago. So there's still the vast majority of people in America think that they are Christians. If you ask them, are you a born-again Christian? 35% identify as born-again Christians. But if you begin to ask them questions about what they believe, about some basic biblical, what the Bible teaches about basic truth, only about 6% of people in America have a biblical worldview. Just simple things like, is the Bible the word of God? Are you saved by faith in Jesus Christ? Only 6% of people believe that. So do you see the problem here? This poll and many others tell us that many more people today in America consider themselves Christians than actually are Christians. And unless a person comes to realize that they are not a Christian, they won't become one. And so the end result is that a person is lost from serving God in this life and serving Him in eternity. So today we're going to look at some of Jesus' teaching on what it means to be a disciple of His, or what we would call today what it means to be a Christian. The word Christian was not used by Jesus. It was first introduced in the Bible in the book of Acts. Uh, they began to call people Christians, which literally means someone who is like Christ, someone who is a follower of Christ. That's what the word Christian means. So how to know you're a Christian? A Christian puts following Jesus first. We're going to begin our study today in Luke chapter 9, verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, that's Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So in this verse, we see Somebody coming up to Jesus and telling him, I'm going to follow you. I want to be one of your disciples. I promise to follow you no matter where you go. I'm going to follow you through thick and thin. And Jesus basically said, you know, when I go around, I have no regular bed to sleep in. I travel all over the place and I, I don't have a bed to sleep in. In other words... If you're going to follow me, you're not going to have a comfortable bed to sleep in. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be harder than you think. There's going to be hardship. 
Now, why did Jesus answer that way? I, I think he knew what was in the heart of this would-be disciple. That he didn't understand what he thought he was signing up for. He thought it was going to be a walk in the park. And following Jesus is not a walk in the park. He was not prepared for hardship. Verse 59, to another, he said, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. So this next person didn't volunteer to follow Jesus. Jesus told him to follow me. He was called by Jesus to become his follower. And yet this disciple had an excuse. He said, I have to go and bury my father. Now, most likely, it's a little difficult to know exactly what he meant there, but most likely if his father had just died, he would not have been around Jesus. What most likely was the situation here as that it was the eldest son, son's responsibility in that society to stick around, to be around the home, around the family until the father passed away. And then it was his responsibility to see that the father had a, had a, um, a suitable burial. But Jesus' answer, let the dead bury their own dead, would have shocked his listeners. What is Jesus talking about? I mean, this is surely your responsibility to your family to, to bury your father should be of first importance. Jesus was speaking, I believe, of the spiritually dead. Let the dead bury their own dead. Spiritually dead people who put their family issues or their family above following Jesus. And there's many examples in Scripture of Jesus making shocking statements about putting him even ahead of family, which is something that people struggle with today as well. Jesus commanded his disciple, this person he was calling to follow him, to leave his family behind and go and proclaim the kingdom of God. As we've been going through this series, we see that's what Jesus did. He was proclaiming the kingdom of God. And this disciple, if you're going to follow Jesus, you do the same things that Jesus did. And that's what Jesus was telling him to do. We have a third disciple, or would-be disciple. Yet another said, verse 61, I will follow you, Lord. This one even calls him Lord. I will follow you, Lord, but... <laughs> There's something wrong with uh, When he hit the word but... Uh, there's something wrong with this whole thing already. I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And So now this third person says, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to follow you, Lord. I'm going to do everything you say, but just give me this one. I'm not quite ready. I have some unfinished business. I have to go and say farewell to my family. You say, well, that's pretty reasonable, isn't it? I mean, you just disappear. And what will your family think? 
Well, Jesus didn't think it was a very reasonable request, did he? Jesus said to him another shocking statement. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you're going to follow Jesus, he's saying, you need to leave your old way of life behind. You're following Jesus is like putting your hand to the plow. Of course, I'm not a farmer. I guess it was all manual back then. It was not like driving a tractor. It could be like driving a tractor, I guess. But you're going down with this plow, and I guess oxen are pulling it. And, you know, if you look back, you're, you're probably going to not plow very well. You're driving a tractor, and you're looking behind you. You're not going to be going forward. Somebody once said, you know, God put our eyes in the front of our heads and not in the back. So we're supposed to go forward. We're not supposed to go backward. And Jesus said that kind of thinking to look back at your previous way of life. People who do that are not fit for the kingdom of God. They're not going to be part of the kingdom of God. They're not going to be a follower of Jesus. A true disciple, a true Christian puts following Jesus first. So as we go through uh, just the three examples that we've gone through this morning of people who wanted to follow Jesus or Jesus called them to follow him, we see that Jesus made shocking statements. In fact, as you go through the Gospels, we see he routinely made statements that were shocking to people. He shocked people with the truth. You see, following Jesus is, is not easy. And unfortunately, sometimes we make it seem so easy uh, to get people to you know, sign up. It's such an easy thing, we say. But it's not easy. It's easy to say a prayer. It's easy to say, I want to follow Jesus. But in order to be a true Christian, you must put following Jesus first. And that's what a lot of people don't understand. When you become a Christian, a true Christian, you're saying, I'm going to follow you as my Lord. And that means I'm going to do everything you call me to do. So in the first and the two of the three examples that we've just looked at, Jesus makes it clear that he comes before family. Now, for some people, that's very hard to receive, isn't it? Jesus must come before family. A true Christian does not let his family distract him from obeying Jesus. A true Christian does not let his job distract him from following Jesus. And we could go on and on. It's just that we need to put Jesus first. It seems as though Jesus was making it hard for people to follow him, doesn't it? I mean, we say, hey, you want to be a Christian? Hey, just sign up right here. It's easy. And Jesus is saying it's hard. It's a hard thing. Jesus says shocking things to get people to understand what it means to be a disciple. And maybe, just maybe... We should speak more like Jesus to people around us. To wake them up. To know what it truly means to follow Jesus. To help them see, perhaps, that even though they think they are Christians, maybe, maybe they are not. How to know you're a Christian? You put following Jesus first in your life. Next, Christians, uh, their mission is the harvest. Your mission is the harvest. Chapter 10, verse 1. 
After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So Jesus had previously sent out 12 disciples, the apostles, to do the same things that he did. And now he sends out 72 unnamed disciples, two by two, to prepare the way for his ministry in the towns that he was going to go to. He sent them out two by two for support, for encouragement, for safety. And as we read the passage, we find out that these 72 were called to do the exact three things that characterized Jesus' ministry. What are those three things? As we go through Luke, we should all know the three things. Number one, he preached about the kingdom of God. Number two, he healed the sick. And number three, he cast demons out of people. It's repeated over and over again. And all of those things can and should happen through followers of Jesus Christ today. So Jesus then gives further instructions as these 72 go out. He said to them, verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. So what is this harvest that Jesus is talking about? What is this plentiful harvest? The harvest is people who need to become followers of Jesus. The harvest is people who need to be saved. And Jesus is telling these disciples that that harvest is plentiful. There's many people who are ready to be saved. Now, oftentimes we as followers of Jesus think, oh, nobody wants to be saved. No, you know, there's nobody. It's just it's so hard. So, no, the harvest is plentiful. What is the problem? The problem is that there are not enough workers to gather in the harvest. There's not enough labors. That's why the harvest isn't coming in. There's nothing wrong with the harvest. The problem is the workers. And how can that problem be solved? Jesus gives the solution here. We are to pray to the Lord, who is the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out more workers. Now what happens when you pray that kind of prayer? Lord, send out more workers into the harvest. Who is the first worker that God's going to send? It's you. You're going to be the first answer to your prayer. And that's how it was with the 72. And Jesus tells them, go. That's an important word. Important two-letter word. We'll talk about a little more. Go. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Oh, that sounds... I don't know if I like that part. Carry no money with money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. So what is the disciples' mission? It is to go. It is to go from where you're at to where the harvest is. The harvest is not going to come to you. You've got to go to the harvest. Something we forget so often. A disciple is like a lamb in the midst of of ferocious and unbelieving wolves. <laughs> but God would protect them. In this instance, the disciples were not to take any provisions. Why? They were to rely on the hospitality of the people that they ministered to to provide for them. They weren't to be distracted or delayed by unproductive conversation. They were to carry out their mission. Their mission is the harvest. 
So let's think a bit about how Jesus' instructions to these 72 apply to us today. Uh, first of all, Jesus' instructions to his disciples do apply to us today. We've talked about this numerous times in recent messages. A lot of people say, oh, that was the apostles. That was Jesus. Well, here we have these 72 are not the 12 apostles. These are other disciples. Instructions of Jesus to his disciples apply to disciples that were walking with Jesus. They apply to disciples down through history. They apply to us as believers, as disciples of Jesus today. Each believer is called to pray for God to send out more workers into the harvest. And as we do that, we need to be prepared that God is going to help us to be an answer to our own prayers, to be a worker or laborer in the plentiful harvest all around us. So who is our harvest field? This really takes more explanation than we can give right now in this sermon, but we have, we have different levels of harvest fields. We have the harvest field that's right around us, and I'm going to talk about that now. But there's larger harvest fields that we also have responsibility for. We may not be able to go on our own to Africa, or maybe we will. Peter's in Africa right now. Uh, maybe God will call us to go. Calvin was on mission for God in Alaska. Uh, so maybe he will call some of us, or he does call some of us from time to time. But, so we have the immediate harvest, and we have a greater harvest field we also have a responsibility for. And sometimes we just help people to go that we can't go to ourselves. But our harvest field immediately right around us, who is that? Well, it's our friends. It's our relatives. It's our coworkers. It's, it's our neighbors. That's our immediate harvest field. You say, well, they're right there. How do I go to them? Well, we go by intentionally doing what Jesus did. That's what he called his disciples to do. We do that with our immediate harvest field. What are the three things? First of all, we have to open our mouth. Right? We have to tell people about the good news about Jesus. We have to tell people about the kingdom of God. Secondly, we need to heal the sick. If somebody's sick, the first thing out of your mouth should be, can I pray for you? If somebody is in bondage or addiction to something, the first thing out of our mouth is, may I pray for you? We need to bring the kingdom of God near to the people in our harvest field. How do you know you're a Christian? You're on mission to the harvest. Finally, your message, what is our message? We'll talk a little more about that. Our message is the kingdom. Jesus goes on with his instructions to the 72 in verse 5. He says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. So the mission of these 72 <clears throat> was a little different than our mission to our immediate harvest our immediate people around us. It was to go to people they did not know. Which is even a little harder than going to people you know. They were to go to people they did not know. And they were to seek hospitality in the towns that they went to. 
And they would bless the families that showed them hospitality. Jesus said that the laborer or worker in the harvest deserves his wages. It means that those who are working in the harvest deserve to be paid a living wage, especially those who are going away from their home, going to other places. In that, how are they to be paid? They'd be paid by the people that they were ministering to. So they go into a town, they begin to proclaim the gospel. Somebody would let them stay in their house and they would feed them. They would bless them, and uh, basically they would receive their, uh, the things they needed from this household. Jesus said, goes on with his instructions, verse 8, Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So when the disciples entered a town, there were two possible responses. Either the town would receive them and give them hospitality, allow them to stay, or it wouldn't. When a town received them, as they were proclaiming the message of the kingdom and it received them, they were to what? Bless the town by praying and healing the sick. And as we go on in the passage, I think next Sunday, we'll see they were also casting out demons. They were doing specifically says they're doing all the three things that Jesus said they were to do. And where did this healing power come from? Well, they would say, just as Jesus said, I mean, Jesus said these exact words, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Because the power of the kingdom was bringing God's blessing into these people's lives. Finally, Jesus says in verse 10, but whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Some towns would not receive them. In other words, they come into the town, they begin to preach the gospel, and they say, get out of here. And back then, I mean, these weren't, metropolises, these were smaller towns, and they, when some of the leaders said, get out, I mean, the town said, get out. We don't receive you, no place for you to stay, you need to go. These disciples were not to call judgment down on the town, as we saw last Sunday, they wanted to call fire down and incinerate the town, and say, no, 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 but they are to shake the dust off their feet and move on. Move on to another town. And they were to tell them that the kingdom of God had come near, but the people had rejected the blessing of the kingdom. It was there. It was there to be received. But they had not received it. And that is a serious thing. When the kingdom comes near and you do not receive its blessing. Verse 12 Jesus said, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Sodom was a wicked city in the Old Testament that was incinerated by fire from heaven. According to God's judgment, it stands for a picture of the final judgment, which is going to be worse for this town that didn't receive the disciples than it was for Sodom. Why is that? <clears throat> because the miracles of the kingdom were there to be performed in this town. The kingdom of God was being proclaimed 
in a way that had never been proclaimed in Sodom. How do you know you're a Christian? Your message is the kingdom. So how is our message about to be about the kingdom today? Well, first of all, let's just think what the word kingdom means. Sometimes we just don't think about some of these obvious things. If there's a kingdom, what also is there? There's a king, right? If there's a kingdom, there's a king. And who is the king? It's Jesus, king of kings and lord of lords. He is the king of the kingdom. And to become a follower of Christ, to enter into the kingdom of God, to be born again, which is how we enter the kingdom of God, you have to submit your life to the king. People have a lot of kings in their lives today other than Jesus. In fact, you know what the most common king in people's lives is? It's themselves. I am king of my life. I do what I want to do. My opinion is what's right. The king of most people's lives who are not believers is themselves. The message of the kingdom is there's only one king and it's not you. It's not you. You need to repent. In fact, that's the basic repentance that needs to be happen in someone who's not a believer. To repent of being king, thinking they're king of their own lives. Turning away from that and saying, I'm going to submit to the true king, Jesus Christ, king of kings and lord of lords. The message of the kingdom of God, there's only one king, it's Jesus. And this king requires total obedience, complete obedience. The kingdom of God is not just for this life. It draws near to people in this life. But it never perishes. It's an eternal kingdom. And once you enter that kingdom, you enter into the kingdom forever and ever. That's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Not everyone will accept the message of the kingdom. Not everyone will repent. But we move on to those because the harvest is plentiful. And there are those who are ready to accept the message. Pray for the needs of those around you. Believe God to answer your prayers. Have faith that he's going to heal. Have faith that he's going to deliver. Have faith he's going to do miracles. Have faith that he's going to bring people into the kingdom. Through your witness, through your prayers. Those things are a sign that the kingdom is near. So how do you know you're a Christian? Your message is the kingdom. Let me go back one slide. I'm not quite ready for that. So I believe it's time for the church to, and for each of us as part of the church. If you're a believer, you're part, I'm speaking of the church consisting of every true believer. I believe it's, part, it's time for the church to speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love to the insanity of our present culture. It's crazy, okay? This is not normal. We need to lovingly speak out against people doing what's right in their own eyes and bringing the truth of the gospel of God's word into their lives. We need to speak out on the issues. What is right and wrong? 
There's a standard of the unborn child being a person created in God's image. We need to speak out for the unborn children. There's a standard of male and female established at creation. We need to speak out. There's a standard of what a Christian is and how a Christian is to live their life as a follower of Jesus. We need to speak out. When we speak out, to speak the truth is to do what? It's to challenge the lies of the enemy. We speak the truth against the lies of the enemy. We aren't silent. We continue to speak. And as we do that, we are lambs in the midst of wolves. So there's going to be pushback. Was there pushback against Jesus and his disciples? A big time. What happened to Jesus? He was crucified on the cross, but it was part of God's plan. And so we pray that God would go with us as we follow Jesus. As we said already, the first thing to become a believer, a follower of Jesus, is to repent. Repent of being king of our own lives. And doing the things that we thought were right. And God's word says is wrong. We repent, we believe that Jesus is king. Jesus is the one true king. We ask him to forgive our sins. To come into our life. And we submit our lives to him as Lord of our lives. To do what he calls us to do. To do the things that he did. In our world. To the people around us. So let's bow our heads right now. We're going to pray. If you never prayed a prayer like this before. I'd encourage you to pray along with me. If you would like to commit, recommit your life to Jesus this morning, you can also pray. Say something like this. Father, today, I repent of thinking I'm the master of my own life, that I'm the king of my own life, that the things I think are right are the only things that are right. I repent. I turn away from those things. I believe that Jesus is the true king. I believe he died on the cross that my sins might be forgiven. Please forgive me. Come into my life. I believe he rose from the dead. He's alive today and I submit my life to follow him, to obey him, to do what he tells me to do. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these shocking statements of Jesus that wake us up to the truth. Help us to put following Jesus first in our lives. And all the things that pull us away from following you, we pray that we would put them behind us, that we wouldn't look back. We would put our hand to the plow and seek your kingdom first. We pray that our mission in life first and foremost, would be to bring in the harvest, to be workers and laborers in your harvest field. Help us to be effective workers in the harvest field around us, to the people and the places that you have called us to. May we let our light shine brightly. May we do the same things that you did. May we open our mouths and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. May we pray and heal the sick. May we pray 
and see demonic bondages broken. We ask that we would do the same things that you did, bringing the kingdom of God near to people wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.